Good morning, Eugene Church of Christ. Every one of you is wondering what I'm doing right now. There was something coming up that I was supposed to remind you all about. Hmm. Good things to look forward to and good things coming. You know, I hear some preachers are real clowns. And you're stuck with one. So. No, we are excited about all the activities and all the energy and effort that's being poured into our VBS this year. And uh, that starts this week. And so if you have kids that can come be a part of that, make sure to get them here because it's going to be a wonderful time together. I probably can't preach very well with this on, so if you'll excuse me, I'm going to have to take that off just for breathing, just for taking me at least a little bit seriously sometimes. That's always a good thing. Uh, interesting thing happened to me this morning. A gentleman who is somehow... Uh, involved in the community, and he just showed up and came into my office and said, uh, I wanted to meet you because I have a word from the Lord for you. That's always an interesting way to start a conversation with someone you've never met. And uh, I said, okay, let's sit down. And he said, I just wanted to encourage you because uh, your task to ask the Holy Spirit the words that you want Him to share with this congregation. And uh, when you speak the truth in love, sometimes people are not going to be able to hear that. And it's going to upset some people. But I don't want you to be discouraged because the Lord is going to bring other people into this place. And he said, I see a vision of many people being, their souls being saved here in this church. He was just in tears sharing that with me. Never met him before, and then he's out again. I accepted that word of the Lord. And I have a lot of anticipation and excitement to see what God will indeed do in this place. So we are back in our text this morning in John. If you are just visiting with us, uh, we are so thankful for that. If you've been here, you know that I have been swimming in John's gospel now for quite a while, and hopefully some good things have come out of that. Uh, this is the first time I've actually done a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, uh, sermon series in this way. Well, I did it with James. James was a little easier because it was only five chapters. John is 21 chapters. That's why some of you are just like, can we get on with John? But it's been really nice for me because I don't have to change my uh, PowerPoint slides as often because uh, some of you get sick of my slides too. I know it. You just don't admit it to me. Well, everything that I do in this, in this role as your minister here in this place, it is my desire to speak truth to you from the Lord to help you understand something of your incredible value and the incredible destiny that our Lord has called you to. How we can do things together in this place to build one another up, to equip each other, to encourage one another. We have a mission to accomplish. 
You have a role in that. We want to find ways to knit each other into these relationships with one another more deeply. So we jump in to a place of confusion with Jesus' disciples as we are finishing up John chapter 16. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. What does he mean by in a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. So we are automatically privileged to be hearing this internal conversation that the disciples are having about some of the things that Jesus said that they didn't understand. Well, Jesus, who knows what's in the hearts of all men, he says uh, he understood the, the questions that they were asking. He saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? See, Jesus, he is referring to his upcoming departure, to his death and also his return in the miracle of his resurrection. But in the hidden music of John's gospel, there is a hiddenness of God, a departure and a loneliness that we face as well. Something in our souls cries out, we can't see you, Lord, where are you? And God himself sometimes hides himself from clear view in our lives. So people describe this phenomenon different ways throughout the centuries. Uh, the presence of God, but also experiencing God through his absence. He's not immediately apparent. He's hidden sometimes. Circumstances in our life happen that we feel like, how could God be anywhere in this? Uh, one writer called it the dark night of the soul. And in that place, God is hard to see. God is hard to find. He's hard to hear. He's hard to understand. And the perceived absence of God in our lives is a horrible feeling for us. But the truth is, we are taught a lot of critical lessons in the hardships that we face. We are taught a lot of critical lessons in the difficulties of life. Our faith is proved and grows in those times when God says to us, in a little while you will see me no more. We want to control this. We want the details. How long is this little while, Lord? What does he mean by in a little while? When it, we want to know when it's going to come in. We want to know how long it's going to last. We want to know when it's going to be over. We want all of that information. Is it going to be a day, a month, a year, a lifetime that I have to face this? And this is information the Lord, he just does not give it to us. But there is a promise in this text as well. In a little while, you will see me. The time will come when he will come again. And when he reveals himself to us, it's going to be all the more glorious, all the richer with meaning, precisely because of the path that we've been forced to travel through our own personal deserts. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn 
while the world rejoices, you will grieve. You will grieve. But your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. You see, we are made to grow. And that growing process is not easy or comfortable. And Jesus' words to describe this process, this birthing in us, it's, it's grief. From all outward appearances, the fights against us have been lost. The world of broken people and broken circumstances, it's like it, these things, they gloat over us. We're crushed and we're down on our knees with these things. And these are the voices that, that come to us, that say, see, I told you so. You, you are getting what you deserve. You were wrong to trust in God. You've been made the fool. As hard as that is for us to bear up under, these are the very circumstances that help us grow. We come to the Lord with a faith that is very feeble. As we start out, we're not as strong as we would like to be. No one gets this all in one go or one shot. And the truth is, we have to grow because our faith is weak. We come with a lot, thinking a lot of really bad things about God and about each other. We come to the Lord and we have prejudices, we have temptations, we have addictions, we have distractions. We have been educated poorly. We are a product of this culture, this culture that in many ways is in rebellion against God. And just because we decide to take a chance on Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we automatically become wise. No, there is a birth process that we are forced to go through. And as much as we hate it, as much as I hate it, the trials that we have to go through, the trials that we have to go through to grow are in fact the path that leads us to true joy. See, Jesus in this text, as he uses this uh, mother giving birth to a child analogy, something that I feel a little left out on. Uh, someone said, well, how painful actually is childbirth? I wouldn't know. I've, I've heard guys who've experienced passing kidney stones, who've been told by women who pass kidney stones, that maybe there's some equivalence of pain, but maybe not even then. I can't imagine really what that's like. I've not experienced either of those things. But it says that pain, that grief, it is forgotten because of the joy that comes on the other side of that. And uh, Jesus is saying that there is something growing in us, something that's being born of God that has value and worth 
that is greater than the hardship of the process getting to that place. A joy that is so much greater that we forget the anguish of the journey itself. And that's a hard thing for us to believe, especially when we are in that pain in some way. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. Just as the peace of Jesus is something that this world cannot give and this world cannot take away, so it is for us as we enter into the joy of God. People, circumstances, spiritual oppression, spiritual warfare, no one, not anything, can take away the joy of our upcoming reunification with Jesus Christ. Do you ever spend time thinking about what it's going to be like when you meet Jesus face to face? That's a question that I used to not think about very often. And now it consumes my thinking. What it will be like when I see Jesus face to face. And it's always the same uh, for me. I just turn around and he's there it's kind of like across the room like some of you are across the room from me now and our eyes lock and I'm so full of joy I just begin to move toward him and I'm laughing I'm always laughing I'm laughing because I can't believe it's so good. I'm laughing because that's when, what I do when joy erupts in my heart. And then I embrace him and he holds me. And I'm still laughing, but then I notice my laughing turns into sobbing. Not just like a few things like a couple quick tears and a pat on the back. No, this is kind of like the, the sobbing of my soul being opened up completely and the floodgate of everything in me just being open wide a place where there's no more pretense there's no more embarrassment there's no more shame I'm just completely vulnerable to Jesus Christ I think about that a lot and I long for that and that idea is a source of joy and strength for me even now. It says, In that day you will no longer ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And I think about what it will be like to be together with Jesus. Why is it that I don't need to ask Him anything? You know, when I was a younger guy, when I was in, you know, doing college, College was actually a while ago for me, some of it. Uh, I was, you know, taking apologetics classes and studying theology, trying to figure all this stuff out. How does it work? And I had my list of questions that I wanted Jesus to answer. I wanted him to answer things about his hiddenness. I wanted him to answer things about the pain and suffering we face in humanity. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Why do good things happen to those people who are in complete and total rebellion against God, shaking their fists at Him? I I had my list of questions. You know what I found about my list of questions? They don't mean so much to me anymore. They don't mean so much to me anymore. I'm not saying that I don't have questions. I'm not saying I don't want answers. But as you grow in a relationship with the Lord, more and more He becomes your one and only. There's nothing I want or desire more than Jesus Christ. And when I have Him, I have everything. I have everything. I don't have the questions that I had anymore. I have Him. He has become my one desire. And that's a journey I think that we are all invited to take place in. This is a question you need to ask for yourselves. Is your life trajectory Is your life trajectory moving in such a way where Jesus Christ is becoming your one and only true desire? Is that becoming more true for you or less true? Or is it kind of static, staying the same? If it's static, if you're just kind of maintaining, there's something wrong with that. If it's becoming less, There's something wrong with that as well. That means there's other voices and other influences that you're being, that are speaking into. If Jesus is more and more becoming your one and only, all of the things of earth that could trip us up and distract us, pull us away, they begin to fade away. And he becomes clear. And He becomes what is most important. Until now, you have not asked for anything in My name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy, your joy, will be complete. Even now, in the mess of My current circumstances, I ask and receive in Jesus' name. And the fullness of joy that I anticipate in Jesus, the complete joy I anticipate, it's a source of strength, even right now in all my circumstances, in the darkness of human life, the joy of my Savior, it embraces me even now. I think this reality is illustrated really well in a verse from Hebrews chapter 12. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy of For the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's this image of Jesus sitting there and saying, 
here on one hand, this is the cross, this is my torture, my death, my separation from God by taking on the sin of humanity. All of that is small potatoes compared with the joy of the Lord that I hold. Everything that this world can throw at us for good or ill to tempt us and pull us away from God, the sacrifices that you are called to make as a disciple of Jesus, the lonely paths we have to trouble, travel, all of those things are small potatoes. When you weigh that in the balance with the joy of the Lord. That joy that allowed Jesus Christ to endure the shame and the torture of the cross. So a question we should ask is, how much do you trust God? Do you trust God like Jesus trusted God? And is that trust in God and what He's going to accomplish on your behalf, is that a source of joy for you? When you think about that, when you reflect on that, is that a source of joy for you? Jesus goes on to say, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. But I will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask me, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying... I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So the, I, pay attention to that beginning phrase. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. So it's like Jesus is able to admit yeah, sometimes the things I am saying, it's a little confusing and it's hard to understand. And the time is coming when I'm just going to tell it to you straight. So why do you think Jesus, when he communicates with his disciples, when he communicates with crowds, he's not straightforward in the ways that he speaks. He is very straightforward, but it's not in the way that people can recognize or hear or understand sometimes. And I think about the way Jesus uses analogy and metaphor and parable. Think about the parables that Jesus uses. One interesting thing about the way he teaches, the images that he uses to teach, they transcend culture cultural boundaries, and they tell us spiritual truths and truths about the human condition that are universal. And living as a missionary for all those years in Tanzania, I got to see how this worked. Um, preaching in Swahili, preaching in Sukuma, expressing that to, to, to people. These ideas transcended their culture that Jesus had. And have you ever thought about how amazing it is that we have these words that were written literally thousands of years ago? How accurate, how uncannily applicable these words are to our lives today. You ever think about that? 
It's amazing. And I also think about the ways that parables work. You ever think about the way that Jesus teaches in parables? What does that invite you to do as a listener? Well, one thing, they're hard to argue against, a parable. You have to chew on them. They need time to ferment. But they paint this vivid image that we, brought, we draw back and we kind of keep chewing over. We think, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to be like a mustard seed? What is a mustard seed? What, what can that grow into? What is it? What does that mean to be sown on rocky soil? What does that mean the weeds coming in and choking life? Parables work that way. They invite us into those things uh, to chew on. And they're also hard to argue against in the sense that I can approach a person and say, you said you were going to do this. You committed to doing such and such. And you haven't done that. That's wrong of you. Well, you come to a person like that, and you know the fight is on. They're going to be like trying to justify themselves. They're going to be, there's going to be posturing. If in that same case, you come at, with a parable that says something like, a father had two sons. He gave them both a job to do. And, said, and the first son says, yeah, dad, sure, I'll do it. But then he just goes on and ignores him and keeps doing what he's going to do anyway. And then the second son says to the father's face, you know what, I'm not going to do that at all. But then later on, he reconsiders. And he goes and does what the job that his dad asks him to do. In the end, which of those two sons has done his father's will? There's no argument with that. It's just an image in your mind that you're left considering. And we're invited into the stories of those parables. I wonder what kind of son am I like? I wonder what is the good thing and the bad thing about what each son does. That's the way parables work. You see, each of us have the keys to our own heart. And when Jesus teaches in parable, he's putting something there. He's, we have these barriers and these walls and these doors up, don't we? And they're hard. They're hard. And when we pray for someone to change, that's a hard prayer. And it takes a lot of wrestling with the Lord and a lot of help from the Holy Spirit. Because he has given us a free will that he does not violate. But the way a parable works is that gets in there. That story, that vision of the way things could be. It invites me to chew on it. It's like a hand grenade lobbed over the door just waiting for the right time when the heart becomes soft and things begin to crack. And those words that are there can begin to seep in. We begin to explore the possibility and vision of what it would be like to do things in a different way. That's the way parable works. It gets past some of the defenses and gives us something to chew on so that when we do come to our... And we're not posturing anymore at that point. We're just left answering the question, what kind of son am I like? We have to learn to trust Jesus more and more. Because he has to speak figuratively to us sometimes. He has to come at us in different ways sometimes because we don't have the strength sometimes in the faith to hear everything all at once about our lives that needs to change. Uh, 
you know, as we grow in faith, we need less convincing, we need less prompting, and we are prepared to act in faith more quickly, to do God's word more quickly. And Jesus, he's able to tell us more straight and directly the things that we should be doing. And of course, the fullest disclosure of Jesus is displayed uh, in a clear expression of love in his willingness to die on our behalf. Jesus tells us plainly about God the Father in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And Jesus says this amazing thing then, that the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and you believe that I came from God. That in loving Jesus, we receive the love of God. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. What is it about what Jesus has just said that makes them finally believe? Why are they finally able to believe now? Well, the reality is that the, the disciples here are trying to do a bit of posturing, I think. Displaying a little bit of false confidence. Trying to throw Jesus off their trail, so to speak. Because actually the disciples at this point, they still have a whole lot of lessons to learn. Their lack of humility is displayed in that phrase. Now we can see. We are the ones who know. We have this all figured out. We know how this works. We, in fact, we understand it so well, Jesus, that we don't even have to ask, ask you any questions anymore. And Jesus, he calls their bluff, doesn't he? He says, you finally believe? You know what's really going to happen in a little while? Y'all are going to tuck tail and skedaddle, basically is what he's saying. Well, let me, sorry, I lived in Tennessee for a while. Sometimes y'all is just a convenient word to throw out there. But You believe at last? But the time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. You'll leave me all alone. That's the truth that Jesus knew. But he also knew a bigger picture and a bigger story. Yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. My Father is with me. Once again, not only is Jesus predicting upcoming circumstances that the disciples will face, uh, they will abandon Jesus. But in the larger context, every disciple is going to have to come with terms with the things that they do. <coughs> we have to come to terms with our own loneliness. We have to come to terms with our own feelings of abandonment or betrayal. We have to come to terms with the ways that we create division, the sins that we do to harm other people. We have to come to terms with all of these things. See, the truth is, if you hang around church very long, eventually we are going to fail you here in some way. There are a lot of people me included at times in my life, who felt abandoned by their church, abandoned by their elders, abandoned by their minister, scandalized by some of the crazy things ministers get into and do. 
feelings of being ignored or even attacked by brothers and sisters in Christ who are supposed to love us. And if you've matured at all in Christ, you also realize that, you know, not only has the church failed me, in some ways I've failed my brothers and sisters. I've failed my church. I failed my family. I failed to live up to my commitments and the vows that I've made. I failed multiple times. See, I don't know of anyone, I don't know of anyone who gets a free pass through this world without suffering. If you haven't faced a whole lot of suffering yet, I hate to burst your bubble and break that news to you. It's coming. It's going to be there. You're going to face hardships. However, these hardships come to us from brokenness outside of us, from brokenness inside of us. In some way, God is going to use that, though, redemptively. And that tough stuff is going to build you up and it's going to grow your faith. And part of the ways that God works for our good is to wean us off relationships and circumstances that in the end cannot provide the things that we need. The truth is we hate being forced to rely on God this way. We want to rely on other institutions or programs or people or to fix my problems and make it all go away and but we all have to discover the ways that we are broken the ways that we are lonely the ways that we are in need that only God has the resources to deal with we have to discover that the ways and the path that God is going to use to wean us, to make us stronger, to learn to depend on Him. Because He's the only thing that will endure. He's the only one who never changes. Remember, Jesus, He knows the hearts of everyone, all humanity, including His disciples. And He knew that they were incapable of giving Him the comfort and counsel that He needed when His life was literally hanging on the balance. No, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to tuck tail and run. Just pray with me for a little bit. Why are you sleeping again? You can't even stay awake for an hour? Jesus' closest and most intimate friends in the world They're going to fail him. And as painful as that reality must have been for Jesus to bear, he doesn't belittle his disciples. He doesn't rub their nose in it. He tells them a greater story and a bigger reality. You know what the truth is, though? I am not alone. My Father is with me. And that is enough for Jesus to face horrific, horrific circumstances, to face it without fear. And it is a spirit of joy because he understood that God was going to use this and the amazing things God was going to accomplish with this. See, he says, I've told you these things, including your own brokenness, your own abandonment, 
all your messes. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Peace is not found in what's happening in the things. Peace is not found in the circumstances. Peace is in Jesus. The peace is in Jesus because that's where God the Father is as well. Jesus is not alone. And this text moves very quickly past any kind of blame and on to uh, blame on the disciples for their abandonment of Jesus. And it instead it focuses and assumes restoration. It assumes that. See, if you have Jesus, then you have God, then you have peace. And this is another extension of that, of that uh, image that he gave us in John chapter 15 of the vine and the branches. If we abide in him, all the life-sustaining sustenance that we need will be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is remarkably realistic about all the garbage that we're going to face and all the trials that we're up against. And he doesn't sugarcoat that at all. He tells us plainly, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart. Skuma, I have a phrase for that. Tiamoyo. Tiamoyo, which is kind of almost like gird yourself. Gird yourself in your cur- the, the courage of your heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome it. Sometimes in my life when I've read these words from John 16.33, they, they literally will make me cry sometimes. Because it feels like there's just constant trouble in the world. I'm exhausted by all the trouble surrounding me constantly. And somehow just knowing that God knows, that God sees, this makes things somehow more bearable for me. It helps me take heart knowing that Jesus Christ is victorious. He doesn't sugarcoat the difficulties you're going to face in this world as his disciples, and he's very clear about this. But we take heart in the victory of Jesus Christ. All the rebellion, all the evil, all the harm that's been done, Jesus is still victorious. And as disciples of Jesus, we can find great courage in this because we know how the story ends. And we can be very bold We know that no matter what this world or anyone or anything can throw at us, in the end, God gets the last word. It's not the president. It's not this. It's not that. It's not these circumstances. It's not the person oppressing you in some way. It's not the disease you're facing. It's not the coming end of your life. It's not... God gets the last word. Let that be a source of strength for you. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son. 
that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. That is Jesus' joy there, giving eternal life. So in chapter 17 here, we have jumped into a section of prayer. Um, Call this the, the Lord's Prayer because this is his actual prayer. What we think of the Lord's prayers, uh, the the prayer that he teaches the disciples to do, like in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is Jesus praying in several times in John, three times that we know Jesus is praying. So we've already read a couple of those. The first one from chapter 11, this whole situation with Lazarus, remember? They took the stone away, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I know that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is praying out loud to God the Father for the benefit of the people standing there. And I think that's what's happening in John chapter 17 as well. And then also chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from all the garbage that i got to go through. Learn from the courage of Jesus Christ in these words. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Instead, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. But now in chapter 17, this prayer, it runs the length of the entire chapter. And in many ways, that prayer is a summary of everything that we find, the major themes that we found in all of John's gospel. It is the recap in prayer with the Father. So some of the themes include Jesus' obedience to the Father, the glorification of the Father through the death of Jesus, the revelation of what God is like. What God is like? What is God really like? He's exactly like Jesus. The choosing of the disciples out of the world. We've been called out. We have been set apart. The disciples have a mission to the world and in the world. We're in the world but not of it, but yet we are here and we have a mission to accomplish, to reach other people, to join in the fellowship of submission to God. The unity of the disciples is modeled on the unity of the Father and Son. Did you notice that part of this prayer? It's not just be united. It's not just get along. It's you see the way I am with my Father. Be like that with one another. That's not putting up with. That's not tolerating. That's capital U, unity. Brotherly love. The final destiny of the disciples to come into the presence of the Father and Son. In a little while you won't see me anymore, and then after a little while you will see me. You will come into my presence. Um, Then these words from verse 3. Now this is eternal life. This is the only place I know of in the Scripture where eternal life is actually defined for us. We're given a definition. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
eternal life defined. It's nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the true God. To know God is to be transformed. To come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. And this knowledge of God, it never can be separated from Jesus Christ. It's always through Jesus Christ. And this knowledge is not just intellectual, this, this kind of knowing. It's not just information. It's not just facts. It includes information. It includes facts. It's much more than that. The knowledge of God and Jesus implies fellowship. It implies trust. It, in, it implies personal relationship, faith, intimacy, and ecstasy. All of this is encapsulated in this knowing. So much so that this knowledge is, in fact, eternal life. I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In my Bible, it's just an NIV in 1984, it has a little heading over it that says, Jesus prays for himself. The only request that he makes in all of this for himself is glorify me with the glory that I had before. And even that is for our benefit. Everything that he's asking already even, who is it, who's it benefiting? Who's it for? See, Jesus and God, they already know one another intimately. They already know that we're gonna, that what they're going to be doing. They know what's going to happen in their circumstances and the situation. Jesus is speaking to the Father once again for the benefit of the disciples who are standing there listening. He does this to reveal something of the beauty of the relationship between the Father and the Son. I think my time has come. We'll, we'll work on John chapter 17 some more coming up because there's some really good stuff here. But just let me leave you with these last few words about this picture of what's going on here between Jesus and God that the disciples are pulled into, the disciples get to witness. What's happening is God is in submission to God to reveal the heart of God to invite you and I into the heart of God. God in submission to God to re which reveals the heart of God and invites us into that fellowship of the heart of God. So, Tia Moyo. Tia Moyo. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Whatever needs you have for prayers of this church, put on the Lord in baptism. Uh, you let this church know how we can stand beside you, how we can encourage you. We want to be equipping each other. We want to be building each other up because we've been given a mission and we have work to do. And... Uh, if you have kids, make sure they get here to this VBS this week. I may, in, in, I may even wear my clown nose again. We'll see. So you let us know how we can serve you as, uh, and come forward and talk to me as we stand and sing together.